Okay, our gospel lesson today comes from Matthew 4, 12, 23, uh, in the New Living Translation. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth, then left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee, <laughs> Galilee and the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God had said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and those who lived in the land where death cast its shadow, a light has shined. From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also named Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving their boat and their father behind. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news of the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. This is the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you, uh, as we do each week, for this room and for these people. Uh, we believe that you're here, and so we ask, um, we ask that you allow us to feel your nearness uh, with us in this room. We delight us. We surprise us. We give us fresh eyes at familiar stories. Uh, will you once again this week give us the courage and the creativity to put ourselves uh, back on the shore of Galilee where we have spent January. And we just ask that as we do that, that we would learn more of ourselves uh, in light of you, more of you and who you are and the ways, um, the places that you might be calling us to, the, the things that you might be calling us to that are beyond what we're able to imagine. So we thank you that you're good and you're with us and for us. In your name we pray, amen. Hi, good morning. Uh, welcome to the preteens. If you heard someone mock my hi, that's my son. He's a preteen. <laughs> um, I'm glad y'all are in here. I like when you're in here with us, so welcome. Um, here at Springbrook, we are spending uh, Epiphany, how churches all over the world are spending Epiphany. In the month of January, we are uh, looking at the life of Jesus and stories of Jesus, stories that um, are very likely uh, really familiar stories if you've been around the church uh, much at all. Um, uh, and even though they're familiar, they're stories that, that we hope will allow us access into something new. That will look at things that might feel familiar and find something new, something new about Jesus, something new about us, something new about how those two things mix together. Um, and so what we're doing is we're just working through the stories, walking through them, kind of just waiting on the Holy Spirit and what he might have for us. Uh, so my plan for our story this week is, um, is uh, as we look at Matthew 4, is I want, we're going to look a little bit at the Jewish educational system. And then I have three observations about uh, Jesus' interaction with the fishermen. Um, and so we'll kind of look at that through the lenses of the Jewish educational system um, and see that the invitation Jesus has for them might be the same for us. And then we'll talk about maybe what the Holy Spirit has for us today. Does that sound good? Hmm, good. Great. I'm glad, glad you approved the outline. I was nervous. Um, I watched a video a decade ago. Uh, 
really serious, maybe even longer than that, um, that um, talked about what school would have been like for Jesus. And it was something that, that um, I don't know, the right way, it, it like imprinted on me. I, I feel like it's something I've never been able to forget. It's something that comes up in my heart and brain a lot. And so it's funny that you said woo, because I almost didn't do this because I feel like I've talked about this before. And it's for, if you've been around Springbrook for very long, then you've definitely heard this. Um, but, uh, but then um, I told Chad, I was sort of wrestling with the Lord, and I was like trying to write this whole new sermon, and I said, what do you want me to say? And he said, I already told you. And I said, but I already said that before. And he said, I, he, none of that really happened. That was just in my brain. But, but th- this was the experience. And so, um, so I think good things are worth repeating. So um, this is stolen, so I can call it good. Um, but I just wanted all of us to get on the same page. So uh, here's how it worked. School in Jesus' time, synagogue school, um, would have taken place in a, kind of in a similar way to us on three different levels. Um, uh, there is sort of like how we have elementary school, middle school, and high school. Although now I guess we have what, 25 different levels? Um, But, you know, there was a time. uh, You can imagine, uh, elementary school, middle school, high school, uh, and it's sort of a similar thing, is that uh, a a Jewish child, honestly, a Jewish boy, uh, girls wouldn't have really gone to school, uh, but a Jewish boy would have gone to school, and it would have taken place in three different levels. Um, The first level is called uh, Beit Sefer. It means the house of the book. So the first level school, primary school, elementary school, it'd be similar ages, like um, around somewhere between four and six until a kid was 10. Um, and base affair would have been the basics of learning. Uh, this is um, the, what our elementary school is, the, the basics of, of how to learn. Uh, the difference is this was Jewish school, so it all would have come um, through the lens of the Old Testament, so through the lens of the Jewish scriptures. Um, and during this block of time, elementary school age kids uh, would would memorize the Torah. Uh, The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. So they would memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Memorize them. I don't know if you've spent a lot of time around an eight-year-old lately. I'm pretty sure my kids legitimately asked me what their middle name was when they were eight. You know, like, um, also, I wrote the names Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy because I was afraid I couldn't even remember the names. And these kids are memorizing them. Every word from start to finish, Genesis uh, to Deuteronomy, memorized. Um, uh, I, I read something this week that I thought was cool. The rabbis, as they would teach kids, they would um, take the, the pages or, or, the, or the tablets and they would drip honey on the tablets and they would have the kids lick the honey off the pages and they would quote Psalm uh, 119 to them and say um, that their hope was that God's word would be as sweet as honey on their tongues all of the days of their life. So if you have kids and you're trying to get them to read the Bible, might I suggest honey? Or if you're you and you're trying to read the Bible, might, might, might I suggest some honey? Uh, it's beautiful, huh? To, to, to think of it that way. Um, and so at the end of this schooling, at the end of elementary school, something a little different is that um, for most kids in Jewish culture, this would have been graduation. Like the end of school would have marked, the, or the end of Bates Affair would have marked the end of school for them. Kids would have um, left their first few years of education, um, memorized the Torah, and that would have been school for them. They would have left that and gone into a trade or gone into a family business or something like that. Um, but a few kids, like a few um, particularly bright kids, particularly special kids, um, kids that seemed to really got it, they would graduate from 
Bates Affair and move on um, to the next level, like the top of the class. They would get to move on uh, to the next level, which is called uh, Beit Talmud. Beit Talmud stands for House of Learning. And so um, uh, around 10 years old to uh, a teenager, kind of bar mitzvah age, uh, maybe up to 15, somewhere around that like middle school uh, type of age is what Beit Talmud was for. That, that was what it was for. Um, at this time in school, uh, students would lean deeper into their studies. Uh, one of the things that they would be learning is how to ask questions um, instead of just receiving all the information to, to be able to participate in the information. Um, we see this at Jesus when he was 13, he gets lost in the temple and we see him asking questions to the rabbis. This is what we're talking about. Um, and so here in, in Beit Talmud, um, the, the students would memorize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. I'll pause for awe. The rest of the Hebrew, 19 additional books. They've memorized five, 19 additional books. They would have 24 books of the Bible memorized, Genesis to Malachi memorized, word for word. Again, I don't know if you've spent a lot of time hanging out with middle school kids or early high school kids, but do you want to know what I was working on during this stage of my life? Not brushing my hair. That's what I was working on. You might not know this, but not brushing your hair requires almost as much effort as brushing your hair uh, when you are trying to stage a very meaningful revolution against your mother who has asked you to brush your hair before you go somewhere. That's what mattered to me most during this stage of life. That, and um, I was memorizing things, mainly Rage Against the Machine lyrics and lines by the poet and songwriter, Jewel. <laughs> While Jewish boys are memorizing 24 books of the Bible, I was memorizing Bulls on Parade or something ridiculous. Two of you know what that's it. Don't Google it, please, Lord, don't Google it. Um, you know how many books of the Bible I have memorized? None. None. I tried to memorize the first chapter of James once because someone dared me to, and I will take any dare, and I quit because it was too hard. And I live after the printing press. Like, I can hold it in my hand. I live with a phone. It's on my phone, and I, I couldn't memorize it. Again, um, this is a huge deal. Memorized. And then at the end of this school, at the end of Beit Talmud, um, for most kids, in, in the, most of the top of the class, they would, still, uh, they would still end and they would graduate and they would go on and, and take on a trade or take on a family business similar to uh, the end of the previous school. Um, and then uh, there was also sort of a separation here. Um, and so the best of the best of this uh, group of schooling, um, the best of the best of the best, like the cream of the crop, the very best of all students in all of Jewish school. These are like the PhD candidates at Harvard. You know, like the best of the best of the best. They would go on into the third level. It was a very select few who got to move into something called Beit Midrash. Uh, Beit Midrash means house of study. And, and this was a really specialized uh, form of learning. They would go out of the synagogue, out of the tabernacle, and, and into the streets, essentially. And what they would do is, a, as a kid who was in Beit Midrash, he would find a rabbi uh, that he wanted to learn from. 
The, the ultimate goal of Jewish education, the highest you could ever be, was to become a rabbi. And so these kids, they would find a rabbi that they wanted uh, to learn from, that they wanted to be like. Uh, the phrasing was they would find a rabbi whose yoke they wanted to carry. A rabbi's yoke was basically the way they interpreted the scriptures or what they thought about God or, or what they thought about life and God and how those things intersected. And, and so a, a Jewish boy would, would find a rabbi whose yoke he liked, whose yoke he, he believed in, whose yoke he wanted to carry on uh, to continue the knowledge and the wisdom and the practice of this rabbi. And he would find him and he would say, I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. And uh, the rabbi would grill the boy with questions about the Torah and how he read it and how he interpreted it. And, and basically what he would do is he would grill this kid with questions in order to find out, does this kid have it? Like, does this kid have the thing that I think it would take to carry on my legacy, to carry on uh, my yoke, to do the things that I do? And then one of two things would happen for this boy. Um, the rabbi might look at him and, and, and say, you don't have it. And then he would uh, send him home and send him back to a trade. Or, again, for the very best of the best, if the rabbi thought you were the best, the very brightest, the most capable, the most promising student, he would look at a boy and he would say, come follow me. Come and be my disciple. Come Follow me. Leave everything that you have and devote yourself uh, to learning from and becoming like me, becoming like your rabbi. This, in Jesus' day, is what it meant to become a disciple. It meant that you had been uh, separated as the very, very best. It meant that your purpose above all else moving forward was to follow the steps of your rabbi, to learn the ways and the practices and the yoke of your rabbi. It was the most respected level of education. The house of study sitting at the feet of a rabbi. Uh, we have a good example of this in the Bible. This, uh, Paul talks about sitting uh, he, in his Beit Midrash that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the most famous rabbi. This, this is what he was talking about. And so the best of the best, um, uh, to our knowledge, this is how the process of schooling went uh, during Jesus' day. And so I think that it's important that we talk about this process because I think that this process has really huge implications for the story that we read today. Uh, because we find Jesus doing something that we find him doing every time he shows up anywhere. And he takes a process that everyone is kind of uh, doing and submitting to and he turns it completely on its head. Is what he does. So often. Uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus, uh, at the beginning of our passage, Jesus um, comes from Judea to Galilee. Um, just to set it up, uh, this passage takes place before where we were last week with the feeding of the 5,000. Um, Jesus has just come out of the desert. He's been tempted for 40 days uh, by the devil. And he comes out uh, to find that John the Baptist, his cousin, has been arrested. Uh, uh, he, he's been arrested. And so Jesus finds out this news. His cousin has been arrested. And he does this odd thing. Uh, Jesus, he doesn't go rescue him. Like someone comes and says, your cousin has been ar arrested. The person who paved the way for you. Been, we've been talking about John the Baptist a lot lately. Paved the way for you. He's, Herod has him. He's been arrested. And Jesus does the unexpected. And he, heads, he goes on a walk for 30 miles back to the ocean. From Judea to Galilee, he, he just walks. And Matthew tells us he starts preaching and healing people. 
And at some point, uh, he walks up to the shore, and, um, and he finds Andrew and Peter and James and John, and he looks at them, and he says the most curious thing. He looks at them, and like a rabbi, he says, follow me. Follow me, and I'll show you how to fish for people. It's a weird phrase. Follow me, and I'll show you what you're really capable of. I think that's what he's saying. These guys, uh, they are, they're fishermen, and so that means a couple of things. Uh, it means that they're not following a rabbi, which means that, that they, to, to the people around them, are not the cream of the crop. They aren't the best of the best of the best. Uh, I told you last week one of my favorite preachers calls the disciples the 12 morons. I don't think that's totally fair. Um, a fisherman would be like a middle-class worker. It would be like so many of us in this room, not poor, not rich, a, a hard worker, faithful in their job. But not the best of the best, not uh, the cream of the crop, not the brightest of all the Jewish boys that might have lived in Capernaum. These guys, they're tradesmen. They are following their family trade. And Matthew tells us that Jesus says, follow me. And that immediately they drop their nets and they follow him. In an instant, they walk away from everything that they have in order to carry the yoke of Jesus. And I just think that, uh, that this is a huge thing. That's a huge thing we see Jesus do and a huge thing that we see the disciples do. So three observations about it, about what happens between Jesus and them in this moment. Here's the first one. Um, I think it's really interesting uh, that Jesus says, follow me. That that's the, the language he uses, that he uses the language of the rabbi, I, 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 rabbis. I think it's on purpose. Um, growing up, and, and this might make some of you nervous, and I think that's okay, uh, growing up, I feel like I heard so much. When people talked about Jesus, I heard so much about believing in Jesus and asking Jesus into my heart. But we don't see a lot of conversations with Jesus that look much like that. Like Jesus, he, he doesn't go up to Andrew and Peter and James and John and ask them to believe in him, to walk in his steps, or to believe in him, or to ask him in their heart. He asks them a really different thing. He asks them to follow him. It's a very different thing to follow him. He, he goes before them and he says, um, follow me to take on, he's asking them to take on his yoke, to take on his way of seeing the world, his way of doing things, to walk in his footsteps and to sit at his feet and to learn how to do the things that he does. And I feel like somewhere along the way we have taken this invitation of Jesus to follow him and, and to walk in his steps and to do the things that he does and we've turned it into something else. It's like uh, we've latched onto this idea that the most important thing uh, that Jesus asks us to do is to know about him or to believe in him. But in the Gospels, we don't really ever see people or see Jesus inviting people just to know about him or just to believe in him. Jesus invites people to follow him. That's a really different invitation. It's a much bigger invitation. Observation number two. Are you uncomfortable? Sounds like it. Observation number two. Uh, here's what I, I, I have wrestled with all week. Why did they drop their nets? Like, why did they do it? Andrew and Peter and James and John, they, they were just fishing. There's no indication that they were waiting on Jesus. They might not have even known who he was. And yet this man comes to them and says, follow me. And they dropped what was in their hands to follow him. And I think that we're supposed to ask why. I think we're supposed to wonder why. 
Like, why would these men who didn't even really know Jesus give up everything they have to go and follow him? They, they don't really know who he is. They have no idea where he's going. And there's no, like, paycheck waving in front of their face. They don't really even know what he's about. Like, maybe they saw him baptized. We talked about that a few weeks ago when John the baptized, baptized, uh, hello? John, <laughs> speak for a living. Um, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus on the shore of, or in the Sea of Galilee. And, and maybe Peter and James and John and Andrew were all standing on the shore like we find them today. And maybe they saw him get baptized. Or maybe they heard things that John the Baptist has said about them. But still, dropping everything. Dropping everything to follow someone that, that you know of but don't really even no, it feels crazy to me, and I think it's supposed to. I think it's supposed to feel a little bit crazy. To me, it feels like uh, the story I told a few weeks ago when my friend graduated medical school and decided not to be a doctor because he was going to work on his music. That's how it feels. I'm dropping my family trade to go follow some guy. None of us would tell these guys that this was a good idea, right? If someone came to you and they're like, hey, I'm going to go follow this guy around and work on my music, uh, or go follow this guy around, you would say, who is it? And they would say, I don't know, really. And you would say, where are you going? And they would say, I don't know, really. And then you would say, what's the pay? And they would say, I don't know, probably nothing. And you, because you have a brain, would say, don't do that. Why would you do that? That's a terrible plan. And I just wonder if, if Why? <laughs> And I wonder if part of the reason that they did it is because what Jesus did was so bizarre. Uh, it's, it's hard to have 21st century eyes in a first century story. What Jesus does to them, it's so bizarre. It's so different from anything else they had ever seen. In synagogue school, rabbis would never have asked a student to apply to them. The student always came to the rabbi, not the other way around. But Jesus, he came to them. And he found them on the shore in the middle of their everyday lives. And he said the words I bet they longed for all of their childhood. It's like how I felt when I wanted to try out for a team. And all I wanted was for someone to say, you belong on this team. It was not basketball. I found out. It's that longing, this longing to be accepted, this longing um, to be told that you're enough. Uh, but they weren't following a rabbi. They had never been called the cream of the crop and the best of the best. But here, uh, they stand on the shore and they, they heard what they probably had wanted to hear, but had long given up the dream of hearing, follow me. And there are layers and layers and layers of meaning behind follow me. Follow me. I see something in you. Follow me. I believe in you. I believe that you can do what I do. Follow me. To me, you are the best of the best. And so... They do. They drop their nets, and, and in doing so, they lay aside their lives, and they give up everything to follow him and to become his disciples. It's supposed to feel crazy. Observation number three. Uh, Matthew ends his story about Andrew and Peter and James and John by saying that Jesus leaves the shore. He asks them to follow. They do. He leaves the shore. And then uh, Matthew tells us he went all throughout Galilee uh, preaching and healing people, talking about the kingdom of God and practicing the kingdom of God. He leaves the shore where he invites these guys into something very wild, and then he immediately gets into it. He immediately shows uh, them what it is that they're going to learn to do from him. 
Uh, There's an old uh, rabbinical saying that people would have said to boys who were disciples of rabbi, rabbis. Uh, If you were a disciple of a rabbi, someone might come to you, and and the way that they would encourage you is they would say um, that you should powder yourselves in the dust of the rabbi. The the phrase would be, uh, like, may you powder yourself or may, may you cover yourselves in the dust of your rabbi. And here's what it means. It would be this encouragement um, that you would walk so closely to the one that you were following, to your rabbi, that you would sit so closely at their feet that the dust of their sandals would cover your clothes because you were so close to them that the dust that kicked up as they walked would cover your clothes. I think this is what Jesus is talking about when he looks at these guys and he says, follow me. I think he means something that um, includes believing in him. Absolutely. And it includes surrendering our lives to him. Absolutely. But he's also saying, follow him. To follow him so closely that we would be covered in the dust of the rabbi, covered in the dust of Jesus. Close enough to know that knowing him is not just about believing in him, but also about him believing in us. Believing that our nearness to him would mean joining him and bringing his kingdom all over the world. Uh, Because their invitation is our invitation. It's very similar. What if following Jesus meant that we don't just believe in the stuff that he said was important, but that we actually learn how to do the stuff that he said was important? Things like doing justice and loving mercy and walking in humility with God and things like healing the sick and blowing life into dead places and beauty into ashes and restoration into devastation. What if we could truly become people of peace and hope and joy and love and mercy and truth, kingdom people, people of the kingdom? What if doing those things wasn't our way into the kingdom, but the gift of getting to be part of it, the gift of being chosen uh, by no merit of our own, and the way that we find full and free life here on earth? Uh, The thing about Jesus, uh, next week we're going to start a a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And and here's the thing about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is only and always talking about the kingdom of God all over the Gospels. If you ever read something in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and Jesus said something, and you're like, what's he talking about? It's the kingdom of God. That's, he has one, one sermon. Me, I got two, I think. <laughs> He's only always talking about the kingdom of God. And I feel like when Jesus says, follow me, he is saying that the kingdom of God isn't just something we're supposed to believe in. That the, that's step one. The kingdom of God is something we're supposed to, it's, it's what gets you to step one. What he's saying is that the kingdom of God is something we're supposed to practice. Something we're supposed to be about, uh, a world being set right is something we are supposed to actively be involved in. Something we're supposed to have our hands all over. The rabbi says, come and follow me. Come and do what I do. Come and be like me. Come and allow me uh, to help you, not just to learn about me, but come and be covered uh, by my dust. Allow me to help you refine the rough edges and expose what is destroying you and declare plenty in all of the spaces that you've called empty and lead you into the way of rescue and reconciliation and renewal. The message of the rabbi Jesus is constantly offering a picture of the God who is putting all things back together in us and all over the world. He doesn't just talk about healing or talk about restoring, or talking about rescuing Jesus, he actually does it. 
He practices it. And then he tells his people to do the same thing. Jesus, uh, he, he comes up to a leper and he tells a leper to be clean and all of the spots go away. And when Jesus says, Talitha Kumi, little girl, get up, a dead daughter is restored back to life. And when Jesus tells the disciples that the fish are on the other side of the boat, an unproductive night gets rescued. Following Jesus means learning how to do what he did, learning how to practice the kingdom of God, breaking into the world. Uh, Eugene Peterson says that following Jesus is as much about our feet as it is our eyes and our ears. Following Jesus, it's as much about our feet as it is our eyes and our ears. It's by doing the work of the kingdom that God, uh, through Jesus, draws out of us more than we could ever think or imagine would be possible. So what does that mean for us? Um, I was listening to a sermon recently by a preacher I love and quote often named Ashley Matthews. She's um, a priest in an Anglican church in Atlanta, like Atlanta, Atlanta. Do you get that when you say two words at the same time? It has a better meaning. Atlanta, Atlanta. So, so she does, and she was just telling a story. It was like a Sunday morning sermon, and she said, oh, oh, by the way, on Friday, my car got stolen, and I'm, I'm interested. She says, my car got stolen, and then you kind of hear the gasp in the podcast, and she says, oh, no, it's fine. Insurance is great, and, uh, you know, we're fine, uh, but the really bad news is two months ago, my other car got stolen. <laughs> In two months, she and her husband, both of their cars got stolen. And so she said when she went, it's not funny, but at that point, isn't it funny, you know? Um, and so she said when, when she walked out into the front of her house and she looked on the street where her car once was but no longer was, she said that she was filled with frustration and justice. Just like someone should pay for this. Insurance. But someone should pay for this. And so she says... She didn't know what to do, and so she automatically decided that she should go for a run, which is a great way to deal with our frustration and justice. So she goes on a run. She says she's running, um, and, um, and she's praying, and, and it's sort of like, why, God, why? You know, I, you've probably prayed those prayers. Why, God, why? And she said she felt like the voice of God said something to her, and he said, Ashley, do you really want to live in a city where people don't steal cars? And she was running, and she said she cried out to God, and she said, yes, a hundred percent. I want to live in a city where people don't steal cars. So, God, you tell me to drop my net, and I will go somewhere where someone doesn't steal cars. Like, I'll do it gladly. And so she said she keeps running, and then she hears God's voice, and this is what he says. He says, if that is the city that you want, then you need to go do your job well. You need to go work well. Serve people and live your story and your role in this story in your city so that you and others can work well pulling wonderful things out of ordinary things in order to build the kind of city where people don't steal cars. The kind of city where there are plenty of jobs and they pay fair wages and no one is so desperate that they have to take what isn't theirs to make their lives work. God's answer to Ashley was this. If you want to live in a city better than the one you live in now, then follow me. Do what I do, and let's change some things. Your job as a follower of Jesus isn't just to believe in me or to talk about me or to subtly hint that you love me and then just kind of sit around and wait for me to return and fix everything. Your job is to follow me now in your life and your home and your city. And I just felt so strongly that maybe that was the same word for us today. I know it was for me. I just assume it's for you. 
The best way I know how to say it uh, is this. Jesus has not looked at you and told you to ask him in your heart and read your Bible and go to church and then call it a day and wait for you to die or for him to come back. That isn't the full invitation of God. That is a piece of the invitation of God. God has not asked to be added into your life. The invitation of God is far bigger than that and so much more fun than that. Uh, My favorite vineyard pastor, Adam Russell, he says it like this. Jesus has not asked to be the garage in your house. He's the mansion. Jesus, he, he he didn't ask to be the garage that we added onto our house when we realized there wasn't a place for all of our stuff. He didn't ask to be the add-on. Jesus is the house. The invitation of Jesus is not that he would be added to our life. The invitation of Jesus is to follow him, to learn what he knows and to do what he does. And I think all of us in this room, we might need to wake up a little bit more to the idea that following Jesus is asking us for more than whatever we're calling following Jesus right now because that's how he works. You never run out of growing Following Jesus will always mean following Jesus more than following Jesus means to you right now. That's, that's how it works. It is an unsatisfied invitation in the most beautiful way. Because sitting in the dust of Jesus means that there is always a bigger and wider and wilder invitation than whatever it is that we're currently walking in. But he won't force us. Have you noticed that? All over the Bible, Jesus never forces anybody to do anything. There's no story of Jesus holding people at gunpoint saying, drop your nets. It's not a thing. He never forces anyone to do anything. But if you, a person of Jesus, want to live a life richer than the one you're currently living, one ruled by the lightness instead of the dark, where Maybe you want to live the kind of life where kids don't get removed from their homes in the middle of the night and where marriages don't break down and where people aren't hungry or oppressed or lonely or violated or depressed. If you want to live in a better life than the one you are living in now, then follow him. Follow Jesus. Learn new ways and in greater ways and in deeper ways uh, what he knows and learn how to do what he does. Be covered in his dust and let it lead you into the practice of seeing more and the practice of doing more of God's kingdom here on this earth. Because following Jesus is as much about feet as it is about ears. The band can come on up. Um... We do this moment every week here we call Selah. It's just a pause, it's a breath to not move on too quickly. And so um, I'm not gonna say much. I just, let's just leave room for the Holy Spirit. Coach Coulter told me that at a middle school dance when I was dancing too close to a boy to leave room for the Holy Spirit. That's not what I'm talking about, but kinda. We're just gonna leave room for the Spirit of God to do what he does. Maybe leave room to hear the invitation of God. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll be quiet. There'll be verses on the screen if that's helpful. Um, you can just close your eyes. If you don't believe any of this, this is just a quiet moment, because when do you ever get a quiet moment? And that's great, too. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you be with us in this room? We give his ears to hear the invitation of God. 
Will you give us brains that wake up to the invitation of God? Maybe uh, for the first time. Hearing the invitation of the God who made us saying, I see you and I believe in you and there's something in you. Come and follow me and do more than you've ever, ever, ever imagined. Spirit, would you give us, um, would you give us ears to hear the rabbi look at us saying, I pick you, come and follow me to me, you are the cream of the crop. Would you uh, allow us to hear the invitation um, maybe for something beyond believing, something that um, looks more like following, more like learning and, and doing, not to earn anything, but because we've been called out and set apart to bring the kingdom of God in this world because we're your plan and that's terrifying. Will you wake us up to the realization that you're asking us into something deeper? Will you allow us to see your kingdom more than we do now? Would you allow us to see our role in it more than we do now? And will you fill us with the wisdom and the kindness and the courage to follow you and to do what you do? For some of us, following you will mean setting down some version of a net and walking away from things we never imagined that we'd have to walk away from. I think for some of us, it will mean um, having the creativity to see where we can bring your kingdom into our nets now, our regular and everyday life now. So God, will you give us the space to hear and will you give us the courage to follow and will you give us the wisdom to know what the first step is. In your name we pray.